This is the Untamed Ethos Podcast. Join us as investment pros, executives, and other experts talk business, personal growth, investing, politics, and the trending topics well-rounded pros need to know about. Authentic, unfiltered, and fun. Joshua Wilson is the founder of United Ethos Wealth Partners, a registered investment advisor. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of United Ethos's investment advice on this podcast, and nothing you'll hear on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. All opinions expressed by Joshua and by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of United Ethos or its affiliates. Welcome back to Untamed Ethos. Uh, I have with me today Dr. Vix, Russell Rhodes, and I'm Joshua Wilson. Today, we're going to be talking about a few things, uh, talking about uh, population drops, especially that in China and other developed countries. What does that mean uh, for all of us? Uh, are we in a banking crisis? Um, we're going to talk about demographic changes and differences in generations, um, what attitudes of Gen Z versus millennials and older generations and some new data that's come out there. Also talking a little bit about uh, artificial intelligence and how that's impacting, um, especially ChatGPT in a recent study that was done at the University of Florida using ChatGPT uh, for, for predicting stock market moves. And if we have a little time, we'll also get into uh, some, a few other things related to, uh, to, to AI, maybe even ESG. We'll see how much time we have today. Uh, but again, Russell, thanks for being back. Oh, it's, it's always my pleasure. Awesome. Well, R Russell, let's uh, let's get started with talking about population today. We're going to just jump right into the meat and the nitty gritty. Actually, let me. We're going to pause. And, I, I see a new hat in the background that I haven't seen before. Oh, uh, what does yeah. that say? Uh, it's uh, it's make volatility great again. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, years ago, about um, gosh, well, Neil said in 2016. Uh, somebody in the VIX pit made these hats for everybody, uh, make volatility great again. And now, if you go to any conference, the good people at Option Metrics uh, have, have, you know, maybe they should have trademarked that. Maybe I should have trademarked yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Like, the timing actually matters a lot, too. That came out in 2016. That, that is when volatility was not so great. And no, it was not. And I guess they were begging. They were begging for what I don't know if they were happy with what we ended up getting. But <laughs> yeah, all again in eighteen was not exactly what we were, what we were was looking for. But yeah, it, it was interesting. So I was doing a lot of speaking at that time in, in seminars, speaking for for financial advisors and uh, and for other custodians. And the question I would get as someone interested in in derivatives and the volatility market is. You know, oh, volatility is so high. It was always the narrative in the financial like, the financial advisor space is clients and advisors saying, with all the volatility in the market, that's one of the things I would hear a lot of advisors say is and start their calls off with clients is with all the volatility in the market right now. It's so volatile. And it was historically not volatile until 2018 and Balmageddon. And then suddenly volatility seemed to return with a vengeance. So. Yeah, that 2016 timeframe was definitely the, um, the, the 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 dark ages of, of volatility before its grand entrance. Yeah, and uh, the the Balmageddon thing in 2018, we really haven't um, you know fully settled down from that. That's that's always been a bit of an overhang. Although you know there are 
and, and it wiped out some of the exchange traded funds that that were associated with volatility. They have been replaced, uh, and which is adding to the uh, the liquidity of the volatility space once again. And part of what happened back in 2018 <clears throat> really was a liquidity event where uh, it, it there was too much size uh, trying to do something in a very short period of time, uh, which caused volatility, which caused the volatility futures to go up very very quickly. Um, you know that's that 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 one's kind of behind us. I don't think that situation will repeat itself just because we have new ETFs now. I think the we know the folks that manage those. You and I do. I've got a lot of confidence in them because their background is actually working on uh, institutional size derivative desks. So they they put some stop gaps and some safety measures in there to make sure that doesn't repeat itself for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a different volatility landscape uh, for sure than what we were coming out of in 2018. But when you say hasn't settled down yet, you know, I mean, I remember and I haven't looked at what the new average would be. I can't imagine it too far from long term average. But back during that time when Balmageddon hit, uh, long term volatility was around 18. And so, you know, when you were looking at the, you know, the it dropping down to what nine or ten, but and hovering more around ten or twelve there for a long period of time. I think that's not, that's where we had been is that ten or twelve region. I think um, before Valm again for quite some time, and you know, so now aren't we just kind of back that back up to a long term kind of average level of volatility? Well, the the funny thing about the the long term average for volatility, which it which and and let's use the uh, the long term average for VIX as as that number. Uh, that number has always been in the you know nineteen around a nineteen. Um, I feel like it may have actually ticked above twenty uh, with with you know the last few years. Last of having few years relatively of high VIX. I'm fairly certain we were eight. We were right around eighteen going into Valmageddon. And and we would be you know we're, we're at seven. We're when we're talking right now we're we're a tad under eighteen. However. Like if you um, if you if you take a look if you bell curve out you know by handle so like seven how many times did we close with a seventeen how many times did we close with a uh, you know with a thirteen handle uh, over half of the VIX closes throughout history are fourteen and below so even though the average is way up here um, what you would consider kind of normal volatility would be VIX hovering around fourteen. And and we haven't gotten back down to that level in in some time, uh, but that's uh, it's I, I should update that because it'll look more dramatic than it used to. My my bell curve distribution of VIX I don't think I've updated it. Um, maybe maybe since I left SIBO. Yeah. So that that it may have changed a bit, but well, um, outliers really pull pull the average up quite a bit. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, you got to. Get a couple of a uh, couple of days in the 50, 60, 70, 80 range. And yeah, it, it even though you're talking about a whole lot of observations, it will start to to pull that number up. And just the fact that we've really been in uh, a range for the until just the past few weeks, we've been in a range over the last a couple of years that involves the low twenties to the low thirties. Uh, yeah, it's definitely been pulling pulling that average up a bit. The topic for probably a future show, then you know, um, yeah, oh to, gosh, to talk about you know, the yeah. the a lot of the funds don't really react the way you'd expect to. I know they're, they're very complicated, obviously, but they only re react the way you'd expect and don't f function as hedges. And 
portfolios that advisors can really use a lot uh, or, or individual clients can really use and expect how they're going to understand how they're going to actually operate in the market and those things have changed the dynamics of those funds have changed you know if you um i was talking to a mutual friend of ours um jim carroll last week and just about uh you know i used to trade the uvxy um and just at a certain point in time um just stopped working for me i couldn't quite figure out why that 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 trade those trades weren't working and i was trading the options around it as well but uh at a certain point, when it stops behaving like you like, like I expect, but I don't understand why it's moving, I got to move on to something else. So, those volatility products is you can't just you can't just understand them once because they can change on you. And and a big really the the market going into and, and I assume you're talking about like the 2021 and definitely the 2022 period. Uh, the market was really braced for a bad 2022. And, you know, I, I, we both teach undergrads. And one of the things that I try to explain to the undergrads is to really hit a home run in the market. Uh, you need to have, you got to be right, but you also have to find a situation where you're right and the rest of the market is wrong. And going into 2022, especially for the first half of 2022, a lot of institutions were hedged. And I can remember uh, hearing a really smart guy that runs an endowment for a really smart guy school uh, several years ago say, as long as I have a hedge on, um, I, I feel pretty good about just continuing to put money to work. Uh, and, you know, the likes operating with that sort of a safety net. Uh, you know, if everybody was prepared for some sort of a market drop in 2022 and they also we're kind of in a situation where they, they didn't want to be putting money to work at the same time. The hedges were on. So you didn't have any sort of, oh, my goodness, I got to buy some S&P 500 puts right now when the market starts to sell off because those safety nets were in place. But also, if you felt like it was going to be a while before the market bottomed out, just put money in cash instead of putting them into stocks and using that safety net. Uh, and I feel like that's uh, that's one of the reasons that the first quarter of 2023 was was. Really nice for the bulls, although the news wouldn't back that up. Well, let's pivot. Um, we had another unplanned conversation about volatility. I don't think we have to to plan conversations <laughs> about volatility with the two of us. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's it's a topic. If we've got other things to talk about, you know, you you want to steer me away from that one as quickly as possible. <laughs> steer Doctor Vicks yeah. away from the Vicks. Um, yeah. So let's talk population drop. So. This, it's something that um, I've, I've talked a lot about with my class um, this semester. As you know, I'm teaching an MBA-level class in strategy at, at Baylor University this semester. And I had a guest speaker, Austin Kimson, uh, who is the chief economist at, uh, at, at Bain, uh, the consulting group. He's the founder and, um, of their macro trends group. And one of the things I asked him to talk about was... Um, Population changes. You know, we've we've kind of taken for granted the the tremendous growth in the world, and sometimes we forget how much of that growth is really due to the fact that, well, uh, populations have boomed across the world. Um, you know, we're dealing with that in the United States, but you know, in the United States we have the uh, privilege of we can people want to come here, and we. Yeah, there's controversy about who we should let in and why we should let them in and what number. And, you know, there's always controversy. But in general, we let 
people in. Um, and we have the ability to create processes and we're generally willing to take people in where China is very different and China is um, much less willing to take in outsiders, uh, non-Chinese and uh, their population. They're, they're now really suffering from the no child left behind and not no child left behind. Sorry. The one child policy uh, that, that they've had for, for quite some time. And now that's, that's starting to come to roost. So they're, they're really much further ahead of, of us in this population decline. Uh, so I want to throw that in, throw that in front of you this Russell this morning Russell. Um, what are your thoughts on on China and the population drop there and and, and especially in the context of the, of the world? What you know you know you and I the one we have a lot in common, but we're going to same PhD program and those sorts of things, and we love volatility. Uh, but another thing that we have in common is we we get in the car and we drive for a while uh, from our residence to where we teach. Um, I drive from Chicago down to Indiana every week, and I, I fill that time listening to different types of experts about, you know, different really market related um, topics. And on my drive down this week, uh, I, I got completely divergent uh, input from you know, bullish on China from people like Ray Dalio uh, and bearish on China from a lot of people as well. And uh, it seems like there's more more bearish. And maybe it's maybe it's YouTube's algorithm and me because I'm bearish on uh, I'm just being fed what I believe. Uh, but I, I think China has a lot of issues. But a, a long term issue that they do have is uh, their population. You know, the, the bulk of their population is much older right now and they're not a reproducing age. And those that are a reproducing age, there's a smaller group of them now. And they're choosing to maybe have one kid, even though they're being encouraged to have more than one child at this point. Uh, I, I like how, and I, I wish I could give credit to the individual that said this, uh, but they referred to children in the country as free labor and country and children in the city as um, a luxury item. Yeah. Uh, but this. but there, there's some there's some sense to that one I, uh, and an expensive luxury item. I, I, I did not it, grow up as a luxury well. item, as you know. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. I I didn't really grow up as a luxury I, item I grew up either. As free labor and things things changed as as the youngest of four. Uh, things uh, changed a lot on the farm when uh, when I went off to college. <laughs> so yeah, I actually had to hire somebody to replace you. Um, but that that's one of the issues that's going on in China. Everybody, and, and you've got to assume, and I'm, I'm going to make a few assumptions here. Um, you've got to assume the, the folks that maybe live in the country that you know, save up, get themselves together and move to the city uh, are the more exceptional people. And you know, you've got to have a lot of drive. Uh, you know, you, you, you grew up in Alabama and you ended up, uh, I'm sure you stood out like a sore thumb when you showed up in the Northeast at a liberal school. Should have had a passport, uh, Russell. That was a oh, I, different world. I, the abuse that I got from my Tennessee accent when I started working on the floors in Chicago, uh, same exact thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and my poor wife, who is from Chicago and sounds like it, she, when I take her to family reunions down in Tennessee or Alabama, she can't understand anything people are saying to her. It's, it's absolutely, absolutely hilarious. But, you know, the, the point there is um, in order for you know, the, your, your best and brightest are likely 
uh, abandoning the country at countryside and moving to the city uh, with the hope that you work a factory job and then maybe your child. Yeah, the, the hope for everybody that has kids is they do better than than you do, and those folks are the ones that are having one child still. So the talent pool, you know, is the the, the best and brightest are are having one kid. Uh, folks out in the country maybe are having two and three still. So um, I, I don't necessarily know if um, their population growth is also like an intellectual population growth as well. But beyond that, uh, they, they've had really cheap labor for a very long time because they had a bulk of people in this 25 to 35 age, age frame. And this was back in the early 2000s. Those people are older like me. Now they're pretty much my age. I fall within that now, and that's the that's a big majority of the people there. Thing is, basic economics. You don't have as many uh, hungry twenty five year olds that are willing to do anything and trying to make a better life for for their next generation. Now they're just not as many, those many. They're not that many people. So I just I learned this factoid on the drive down. Um, it, it right now. The same labor in Mexico, which it's a lot easier to get stuff from Mexico to the U.S., uh, the, the per hour labor cost for similar jobs is a quarter of what it is in China. And I think part of that is they don't, is China has fewer people that are willing to do a factory oriented jobs. So you're having to pay more and more and more to attract them into the factories. Uh, and once you get them in the factories, yeah, they, they, there were situations where uh, people were practically escaping factories like they were getting out of a minimum security prison uh, when things were going poorly there. They're not going to go back to do, they're not going to want to go back and do factory work. So I think because there are fewer folks to work in those places, uh, U.S. companies are looking elsewhere for the, for a multitude of reasons, but this is one of them. It's more expensive to produce in China than it used to be. So, you know, you had Apple quietly say, we're going to start making some iPhones in India. And India is uh, trying to attract folks or trying to attract industry uh, for that very reason. And India has a better population right now, better demographics than China to get the factories up and running and make iPhones for us. Uh, Vietnam is another one. And Vietnam, well, China's not losing, only losing jobs in Vietnam and the factories for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, Vietnam, and that, that's another another kind of uh, beneficiary here. Um, Vietnam, not only do they have, uh, they've got a good population, they got uh, to, to uh, manufacture electronic goods or anything else that you want to put on a boat and send to the U.S., but they also have the ports. They are there on the, you know, they're on the ocean, whereas India, I, I feel like India and Australia are probably the most remote places relative to the U.S. in the world. Yeah, you know, they just it, you, you can't get there from here. So producing something in India is going to add a few days to shipping. But I feel like India and Vietnam are very well suited to over the short term to steel manufacturing away from China. And they're doing it. But And companies are moving things, but they're doing it quietly because they don't want to upset uh, the Chinese government. And then a, a long term solution seems to be uh, trying to take advantage of um, having cheaper labor and closer labor down in Mexico as well. 
the problem that it starts to become it's with Mexico is really a higher skilled level um, labor in, in Mexico as well. Now we tend to think of, that's, of China as as tech, 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 but the fact is, uh-huh. is the overwhelming majority of labor we get that we get from China is not high skilled labor, especially for the cost. Um, and, and then plus you got to add in obviously the transportation and all that other stuff. It's Mexico is a mm-hmm. lot more attractive for us in, in many ways. Yeah, and, and what you just said with respect to the level, uh, the the bigger issue with Mexico is we you know let, let's just say that the manufacturing process is you know uh, first step on raw materials, second step on raw materials assembly. China's up here at assembly, and some of the you know and, and some of that second level, that bottom level is is where you really need the cheap labor. And they don't have that in China. They have it in countries that border China, and that that's kind of how the thing how things have worked in Asia. Um, we don't have that in Mexico. We've got the second and third level. So what's probably going to have to happen over a long period of time is look a little bit south of Mexico, where you can get that first level, and that will become our new supply chain, just working its way north instead of working its way uh, east from you know Asia. Working its way west, if you will. Yeah. Working its working its, no, working its way east from China. China's west of us. Well, that's true. I mean, depending yeah. on how you look at it. I, I, I had to think about it when I said I, it. I, I, I was thinking about it more as we consider ourselves the West and uh, more from a... Depends on what you're starting as the center of the world. If you're starting as yeah. Western civilization versus Eastern civilization versus where you, where you want to start on the globe. But from an investment standpoint, I wouldn't put a penny in China. I, I, that's really the whole. In fact, you and I, I think a few weeks ago, you and I were kicking around ETF ideas. And I said an emerging market ETF that excludes China because they're not really an emerging market anymore uh, would be a really attractive one. And I don't know who launched it, but sometime between I, between our conversation about a month ago and today, one has been launched. I just can't recall which one. I thought there like. was already one on the market. There was some I'm, I'm sure there was probably one on the market as yeah. well. There's an ETF, as they like to say at some of those big ETF events. There's an ETF for everything. Yeah, and, and yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There, there's very quickly. Uh, so let's talk talk banking crisis. You know, you and I had a short video uh, earlier in the week, mm-hmm. and uh, viewers can go back and take a look at that. We had a very short conversation posted earlier. Um, but let's talk banking crisis or potential banking crisis. You know, the, the, the thing that you and I have kicked around and, you know, you and I were both looking at earnings that came out last week, major banks starting to report and things look good. You know, JP Morgan looked really good. I think City looked good. Wells Fargo pretty much. I think they were flat on the day that they maybe maybe down just a little bit. Is that right? On the day that they reported, I think. Uh, so the market generally liked the news, especially from from J.P. Morgan. And the narrative is is well, people are bringing money from the small banks, moving it over the big ones because of their scared, frightened fear. Um, that's the narrative. But man, this is this 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 news is barely a month old. I mean, they'd have to be moving real fast, and then the banks also. Taking that that deposit and lending it out real fast at a at a level that's significantly higher for us to really notice it. Yeah, there there, there are a few a few factors there. I mean, the, if 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 Silicon Valley Bank was the catalyst behind everybody pulling money out of uh, smaller banks and rushing into you know the big safe 
uh, huggy arms of Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan, uh, we would have seen more banks, more smaller bank failures than we've seen over the past few weeks. So I, I, I don't think that is that much of a factor. But also, uh, I, I, you know, J.P. Morgan put up some really strong numbers, and it, it I, I find it very difficult to believe that you know the last three weeks of March are where they got those numbers from just because, you know, depositors are moving over. You know, if anything, if a bunch of depositors move over, uh, you know, they, they got to figure out what to do with that money, uh, J.P. Morgan does. Uh, I don't think that we're in some sort of the early stages of any sort of banking crisis, uh, partially because of what I just said. We, I don't, we don't see a lot of smaller banks uh, experiencing the type of runs that Silicon Valley Bank did. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I don't think that, there's some sort of theme here that all small banks are getting ready to go out of business and we're just going to end up with, you know, seven or eight national banks. The stocks would be showing that right now. My understanding is the like maybe one of the regional bank indexes was hitting a new low when JP Morgan was reporting on on Friday uh, and putting up really good numbers. And the large banks were all you know pushing toward uh, new recent highs uh, that, that, that just can't. That, that, that can't be the overall factor. I think the Silicon Valley bank thing was very company specific. And what I mean by very company specific, uh, they, they're, they were a big proponent of work from home. Um, you and I have been in the financial industry our whole careers. Uh, risk management is extremely important. Uh, typically, a breakdown in risk management is core to uh, a long-term capital management situation uh, or, uh, or you know, a bank going out of business. Uh, when you've got your risk management department scattered around the country working remotely, uh, if there's an emergency, uh, it, it, you, you need people in the room when there's an emergency. I, and everybody's a big proponent of work from home. Uh, I like to work from home. It's, uh, you know, I get to sleep in an extra half hour. I don't have to fight people on the train when I'm, when I'm in Chicago. Uh, so I, I understand that, but there are certain things that you, if, if they can be in the same room, they should be in the same room. And managing risk for a financial institution, whether it's a small community bank or JP Morgan, you want everybody in the same room. Also, JP Morgan, they, they, my understanding is they pay very well and they probably have some really smart folks in their risk management department. Uh, I, I have a funny feeling that you never want to go to Jamie Dimon and say, we missed something. I, I can only imagine the wrath of Jamie on that one. Um, uh, they didn't even have somebody running a risk management department at Silicon Valley Bank. They had a few people. My, I, I think they actually had somebody working like in the woods in Oregon uh, by himself. Uh, so I don't think we're in a banking crisis uh, at all. Uh, I, I, and if anything, maybe it's a uh, it's an opportunity to pick up some smaller uh, regional banks uh, at at a discount right now, as long as you're uh, confident that that they're not going to experience any sort of bank run. Yeah, the, the the big picture that scares me about this more than anything is the consequences of fear. If 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 this narrative is partially correct, and the fact is, is if people if enough people believe the narrative, what may not technically be true today may be true in the future, because all it takes is people believing it's true to make it true. <laughs> you know. Oh yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> um, then all of a sudden people are are moving, and maybe this narrative that we're doubting right now is suddenly true if 
if if we get a few more blips that cause this narrative to gain some some more steam. And you know, my concern is always, well, more powerful big banks, more powerful big banks that um, that are getting with government to create more regulations that are pro big bank and uh, hurt, you know, are way more painful for a small bank to endure. I'm willing. That's the thing that, that that folks don't seem to get sometimes is when we create a regulation um, for a big bank, and well, they're a lot stronger and they're able to bear that additional administrative burden or something like that. And smaller banks and regional banks and community banks, they can't bear these same regulations and burdens uh, often to the same extent. So, if 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 I put you know, 10 pounds in my satchel versus 10 pounds in my girlfriend's satchel. Uh, well, she's, you know, she's a, a, a lot, lot smaller than me. And 10 pounds to her is going to be a lot more noticeable or 25 pounds to her than it is to me. It's going to affect her performance more than it's going to affect mine. And, um, you know, it ultimately has an undue burden on smaller institutions, and then therefore they can gather more power and have more control over our lives. Um, and I I don't like bigger and bigger institutions that are closer and closer friends with the government. And that's the government from either side, right? I, I did the, oh, yeah. the general yeah. distrust for um, folks that are, that are using their influence to be in charge. Um, you know, and what is the, this, this restrict act? That just came out. It, it makes me reminds me of this. Have you heard of this? Uh, is it restrict? I have it. Restrict, right? I have, it. have you heard of this? I have not. Okay. So the not. bottom line, uh, uh, you can take a look at what we talk about next time. Um, big picture is the Biden administration, and um, there's bipartisan support from different senators and congressmen, and so uh, so all uh, so forth, who are basically wanting to regulate. Uh, you know, ban TikTok or whatever different things. Oh, that's I... and you know the there's some bipartisan support, but it gets kind of scary when you start thinking about when you actually start getting into and we'll, we'll we can talk about this next time to restrict that we actually start getting into the other things that they can restrict. And you know, I always say when it comes to giving the government power on anything, you know, if you're if you're if you're a Democrat, for example, and Biden's in office and you trust Biden, okay, well, tell me, do you want, let's say Trump wins this next time again, or let's say DeSantis wins or whoever. Imagine if Trump had that same power. Imagine a Trump administration with the power that you're given the Biden administration. Imagine the DeSantis um, administration with the power that you're willing to give the Biden administration. Because People tend to think about giving power to the party that's in power. And well, I don't want to support this party power. Whatever you give the Biden administration, I don't know if it's next election or the election after that. I can't, I'm not, I don't know who's going to win the next election. I'll tell you, eventually, somebody on the other side is going to have that power because you're giving power to a chair. You're giving power to an administration and the people that they put in there. You're giving them their power. The power goes to the chair. It doesn't go to the person. That power doesn't expire because Biden is kicked out or that uh, or the, the, the Democrats and Republicans that agreed on it, they're kicked out or whatever. The power is still there. And that's what really concerns me about uh, about things like this happening is 
more power to big banks, to the to the establishment, if you will, and that always lends more control over our lives. There are no fixes for these things. It is um, it is as one of my favorite quotes uh, from my one of my favorite economists, Thomas Sowell, says: "There are no solutions, only trade-offs." And if you can get that in your spirit and soul, then which I have. I, I'm not expecting anyone to fix things. I'm expecting to try to, to have to make trade-offs. And those trade-offs may come next year or the year after, or they may come immediately. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of those trade-offs in the economy right now of, of, of things we chose in the past. You know, we've essentially fed the economy, in my opinion, a diet of, uh, of, of sugar and, and, and cola and caffeine for a very long time. And now we're trying to have to deal with what do we do when we, have to continue pumping sugar into the economy to keep us stimulated, but at the same time having to deal with the problems of uh, that we've caused with our long-term health. How do we shed some pounds or get over these sugar addiction we've had with easy money policy and zero interest rates and all the other things that have gone with it and you know free social this and free programs for that and just just throw money at every problem and you know, luckily, we're the, we're the United States where, you know, the alternative, we're still a, a better alternative, uh, which is a lot of my commentary of, over the years, what the United States has been is uh, when I hear so many negative things about the United States is, uh, well, we're still better off than a lot of the other places to that we could be sending money. And that's the thing that we continue to have. I mean, think about the, the, the strength of the dollar, right? How strong the dollar has been, despite the fact that inflation um, has been has been uh, the, the the narrative that we get at home is well the, the value of the dollar is 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 going down 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 and it's well it's kind of true the purchasing power of your dollar is going down so it's true in one in one extent but in another extent you look at it and and a global uh, globally the dollar has been strong and I'm not talking about every week every month and it's got its you know, overall but overall the, the dollar has been strong and it's been strong for quite some time and it's continued to get stronger even when we've had the worst news about the dollar coming out and it continues to be well what are you comparing it against because you can't really talk when it comes to a global currency you can't talk to a global currency in isolation you can't just talk based on the policy of printing money printing money inflation inflation all this is bad you still got to value it against some other currency because that's how it gets its value it's it, it, it's traded so what, what things are going on over there what does the market believe about those things? And we've still had strength despite all the narrative of weakness in the United States dollar. Yeah. And, uh, even, you know, although it's come under pressure a, a little lately because uh, that, well, there's this, you know, the, the, this global theme, uh, let's start trading things in, in something other than dollars. And that you're, you're going to get, you're, you're looping me back to China who wants, uh, you know, wants Saudi Arabia to start accepting uh, the yuan in exchange for for oil? Um, what's kind of funny is uh, there have been instances in the past where actually Russia. This has happened to Russia, um, where Russia has accepted Chinese yuan in exchange for for um, oil, <clears throat> and now Russia wants to cash that yuan in, and China says, "Oh, we don't, we don't want that. You guys keep it." So they they got to find a new home for it, which uh, yeah they they we criticize our government for printing money. Uh, you really want to you know accept 
currency from a, a you know a pretty secretive place as far as transparency around what they're really doing. You really want to uh, accept currency from you know a country that probably has printed a lot more than than they admit, and they don't want to take back whenever you know you won't accept from your country. Uh, it 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 really just you know makes me pause an awful lot when I see some really smart people saying. Uh, that's you know that, that we're going to miss out on an opportunity to invest over there again. Uh, I just I, I have a hard time buying into it when I, I when I see things like that. I have a a close professional uh, relationship with someone who uh, was teaching option class, classes in Beijing forever, and they were getting paid in yuan. Uh, they've never gotten a dime out of that. Wow, that money is just stuck over there. So you know you don't. You know, you don't ever want to get involved in a game with somebody who gets to change the rules midstream. And China will do that. And then just back on the regulatory thing for a second, you know, not necessarily changing the rules, but doing a better job of enforcing the rules yeah. might be the first step. Oh, we can. Uh, never, and, that's never talked about, Russell. It's, it's never oh, about what rules do we have? What regulations do we have that we're not enforcing? It's always we have to do something and it can't ever be well we've got rules on the book like these yeah just are, put some more people in place yeah. instead of spending all the time you know you know where they have done that is the irs <laughs> they've hired a ton more irs agents. Ton more irs agents. and that's that's because uh the people that the irs agents will will probably be spending a little more time uh auditing uh their people like you and me and we we, we don't have a uh we don't we, we don't have a lobbyist <laughs> to go around and so uh yeah it, it, i just think you know doing a better maybe just doing a better job of enforcing the rules on the books uh which can go for a whole lot of things and, and we're not going to deviate beyond finance but um you know the, the town that i live in uh there are you know the, the i think 10 percent of murders in chicago actually result in an arrest not a conviction and arrest. So probably need more people enforcing the rules there as well. Well, Chicago is its its, its own place, man. We won't, we won't get on the Chicago politics no. any, any, any today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that does remind me I'd see, and I, this, I think this was, I think this was actually a place in California, Northern California. I'm not sure exactly where it was located, but I saw a video this weekend. It was the same um I think it was a state senator and it could have been local. I'm not sure. Uh, but she was showed a video of the gal last year with the defund the police and less police, less police. And now it's, hey, we're starting this new thing and we're going to be hiring more police. <laughs> you know, it's just whatever the narrative is, we need to change something, change something. It's it's never we're just not doing a good job of enforcing things. Um, it's, you know, we need less of this or more of this. It's. It's never about of actually checking the progress and is this effective. We only judge policy by its intentions, not its actual effectiveness. It's never quite the effectiveness is not question is not questioned. It's not, we need we need something new. Yeah, and it, uh, the 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 unintended consequences are always. Uh, and I love how you if 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 you went to Congress right now and if you went to you know, a bunch of people on the blue side of the aisle and you said you know the and we, i i could i didn't i know what you're talking about with the restrict act now but if you went over there and you said hey you know if you pass this um 
and your guy doesn't win, um, you know, the next guy, whoever it happens to be, uh, is going to have that power. So think about it for a second before you approve it. And the the whole idea behind the Restrict Act is, uh, you know, our information is being gathered by TikTok. They are, my, my, one of my kids has it. Uh, they know where she is all the time. Apparently, it's gathering our information when it, it's still running in the background on your phone. Uh, they also have the ability to to get your information for, you know, they probably could get, if I had it, probably get my bank password and a few other things. Uh, you don't, you know, you, you, you don't want any entity to get hold of those things, let alone uh, a government that doesn't share our ideals. And in China, there's a rule that uh, companies have to share that data for public safety purposes, uh, you know, at demand of the overall government. So, you know, I, I, I do understand the TikTok thing. I don't understand why you got to throw a bunch of other crap in there. Just, you know, let's narrow, n- narrow it down to the thing that might be a threat to us. Let's talk, uh, let's continue talking demographics a little more locally. Um, a, a rent Cafe released uh, some statistics. They did the analyzing data from the IPUMS on the 100 largest metro areas in the United States. And this is the first time that I've ever seen the number of millennials who own homes in a study, in in any statistics I've I've seen, the number of millennials owning homes to be greater than the number of millennials renting. And their data showed 18.2 million owning homes and 17.2 million renting. This is a pretty big change for this generation known as only want to rent, doesn't want to own anything, can't own anything. So uh, I'd say this is pretty encouraging data considering you know, the demographic changes of going from, you know, uh, obviously we have boomers, then Gen X and you're, you're Gen X, right? Right. Uh, I guess I'm 55. What does that make? I think that makes you, Gen I'm, X. Like, I'm like right on the border. I was born in 67 and I think 65 is one of those cutoffs. So I'm kind of strapped. Yeah, so you're, I've, all, uh, I've, you're, I've, I've always been older than, than I, than I come across. You're an elder. I've looked, I've looked like this since I was 16. You're, you're an elder. So you're an elder. <laughs> Uh, an elder Gen Xer. There you go. Okay, I'm, I, I, yeah. I'm does a, that make me king of the geeks? Yeah, exactly. You're you're an elder. It makes perfect sense. So you're you said you're 55. Is that right? Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm 40. I just turned 40 in February. So we're 15 years apart. So and it, it, generations are, are generally 15 years uh, ish. And I'm an elder millennial. Uh, I was born in the beginning of '83, and I think the cutoff for millennials is typically 1981, 1980. I think 1980-ish is 80, 81 is typically millennials. And you know, my two older siblings, uh, uh, John and Jerry Joe, they're twins. Uh, they're 14 years older than me, so I've I've seen within my own household. My dad was, um, let's see, what is that? He was six years old. So what, what's above Boomer? Is that the silent or is that greatest? I, I forget which greatest. Is that greatest? I, yeah. My dad was, I guess, was greatest. Uh, my mom was a Boomer. So she's an, an, an elder Boomer, born in 46. Dad was born in 40. So we've had literally one, two, three, four generations all in the same actual household because of the age gap between my mom and my dad and between the age gap between the oldest two and the youngest two. Um, so my brother and sister are, are about your age. And, and I've always felt like I was a little older as well than my cohort. 
a lot of that's because I was raised in rural Alabama uh, on a farm where it felt probably a lot more like 1970 than it did like 1990. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, the the, the change is, is, is pretty noticeable of starting to kind of see this. It's good to see the, um, the, the number tick over um, buying versus renting. What are your thoughts on that? I, you know, I, part of that, I think, well, they're growing up. I mean, I, I can remember when I was in my 20s and I was working. I, I lived in Buckhead, worked growing in Buckhead, in Atlanta, had a, you know, had a great hedge fund job, making, you know, doing pretty good. Uh, finally, after, you know, trudging through college and everything. And I, you know, after a couple of beers, I'm like, ah, I'm never moving to the burbs and never having kids. Blah, 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 blah. I live in the suburbs. I have two kids. Um, you know, so eventually part of it's growing up. And then I do, I, I know um, that the, um, that, that the COVID situation kind of accelerated that move. You know, if you were in your mid twenties and you were living downtown in Chicago and I was teaching at Loyola during COVID. Loyola, the business school, is right in the middle of the Gold Coast. And there's like a 45-story uh, apartment building next door that I could see into, you know, not, not in a creepy way, but you could see that it was basically empty after a year of COVID. And I know a lot of my former students either moved back in with their parents or just went ahead and took advantage, you know, took advantage of low interest rates and were able to... Uh, go ahead and become a suburbanite even before you have kids. So I think I, I think there there are two factors there. One is the normal demographic change. I, uh, they they say they're never going to do that, but uh, it's amazing what happens when you hit a certain age and and you decide that you don't that, that the fun's not fun anymore and you want to settle down, or you know you get trapped into settling down depending on your attitude about it as a guy uh, and. So and you end up moving out to the burbs and and I've because I've been teaching at, at the college level for almost a decade now, you know I've got a whole you know a whole group of uh, twenty two to thirty two year olds that I kind of keep up with and check in with periodically. Uh, one of one of the better students I ever had uh, early in my teaching career at a, at a school called Benedictine. Um, she's she's married. And uh, been married to a guy she was dating forever. She's probably 32 or 33 now. They don't have kids, but they bought a house in the Burbs uh, about two years ago. So, and they both work downtown. And I've got another intern who just got engaged, a former intern who just got engaged. I would guess she's 28 or 29. And the guy that she's marrying, they just bought a house like a week or two ago. I saw that on Instagram. That's not the normal progression. I, I got married when I was 35, which was a great move on my part, um, and lived in the city for a couple of years and then, you know, decided it was time to have kids and moved out to the suburbs. Yeah, I, I did the I did everything opposite. I, I say put every dollar I'd ever saved into a home the, like the month after I turned 23. So I've been out of college less than a month, no, less than a year. Every dollar I had into that home to make the down payment and start off, and I started renting. Uh, so moved to the suburbs and a brand a new bill from Ladar Homes Starter Home, and started renting out one to two rooms in my house for a number of years until a work assignment moved me out of state, and I decided to sell my house. Which I wish I'd kept it now. Um, but I decided to sell the house and, and I made that decision because I was young and the company was, was willing to pay closing costs. Uh, and so I probably made that decision based on uh, 
you know, short-term interests, you know, just of, of, of that. But um, when I came back to Dallas, that's when I started renting in the city. So I didn't start renting in the city until oh. late, late <laughs> 20s and rent in uh, the city for a while. Now, of course, I live in the, in the suburbs again, but yeah, I actually went from college to the suburbs to the city and then back to the suburbs. So I uh, had, had my, uh, my city experience there a little later than the typical 22 went from suburbs to, to city. But, you know, I think that this is interesting too, because some of the other data that they, that they, that they um, came out with would probably be surprising to you, but the attitude about money, they see that Gen, Gen Z um, thinks that their parents should cover some pretty basic expense, uh, what I would not consider extremely basic expenses through the age of at least 21, um, travel. Uh, they think parents should cover that. Credit card bills, Netflix, cell phone bills. These were all listed among the things that they the, the, that uh, Gen Z thinks that parents should cover through uh, through age 21. They think, and I've I've heard these conversations coming up with more financial planners, and this is interesting because the data also showed that 68 percent, so about two thirds of parents, said that they'd made significant sacrifices to help their kids with money. Now, what does significant mean? Well, I guess that's up to you. Um, uh, 43% said they sacrificed retirement savings and 49%, so half, basically half said that they had slowed paying off their own debt and, of course, um, investing in retirement. These discussions, planner, you know, advisors and planners are having all the time, and it, it seems very easy in practice to say just cut them off or just don't do that, but I've had these conversations, someone who works with a lot of advisors, I have these conversations with advisors who are thinking about setting up their own shop or thinking about transitioning uh, to, you know, going independent. And a lot of the time it's, well, I got, I got these expenses and the expenses are not just college and they're under- it's basic. It's it's the kind of stuff you and I were covering. Yeah, and it's and it's also I was making my, I was making my own car payment. Not, not really, yeah, we hear so much about the student um, the student debt problem and how many students, how many loans kids have, but we don't hear so much about the student about the people, the parents, the Gen Xers and baby boomers um, who are not letting their kids pay for college and who are making big sacrifices um, in their career that they could make a change in a career if they could only bear a little more risk. So they're being prevented from bearing some risks that you should be taking in your 40s or 50s. Um, like, hey, like you're you're 40 and you've got kids that are thinking about college or you're 45, 50, you know, you should be taking some, a certain amount of risks and you can't because you don't let your kids take their own loans. Uh, for school, or they have the attitude is, I can't get a loan because I make too much. And that's not actually true. You can still get a loan, but you may not get the the best terms. You may not get a Pell Grant. You won't get free. You won't get a grant. But you can still get a loan, but there's a lot of attitudes, well, I can't get a loan because I make too much money. But, uh, you know, when you've got two or three kids at especially good, solid, respectable universities, a um, couple hundred thousand dollars go, does not go a long way, especially if you're in a high income income state. And, and yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll hear so much about <laughs> the impact on family, and advisors mm-hmm. are dealing with that right now with their clients. Well, 
you know, is it, I, I, I know a situation where someone, somebody had done extremely well and they had, uh, you know, they, they made sure that, that their kids didn't have to spend, you know, that, that they were financially secure, that they were, their goal, this was their goal for their children, put them through college, get them on track. And, you know, they were well off enough to buy them a house that, that was, you know, I'll buy you a starter house. I'll pay for your college. And if you have that ability, you know, more power to you. But what ended up happening was, uh, you know, the, the two kids that he'd, he'd done this for, uh, that that set a really bad expectation as they became an adult. And this is where the financial planner has a, an opportunity. Uh, what he ended up doing was having the financial planner meet with them individually and, and, and really go through everything and show you know, if they continue to be on the path that they're on, depending on their parents, they're going to end up having to take care of their parents because they're, they're going to tap their parents out. Uh, and and I the, the, the beginning of the conversation was, you know, I know that, you know, I know your dad did well, but you two are not Rockefellers. That's exactly what he said to him. And I love that line. I to totally love that line. Um, so, you know, if you're a financial planner and you've got, you know, uh, you know, me in 10 years, because my kid, my, my one's starting college next year and I've got one that's two years away from college, I'm getting ready to hit that very difficult period that you're talking about. And luckily I prepped for it quite well. Uh, you know, it's not, it's definitely not sneaking up on me. Uh, but, um, you know, once they're out of college, they also have an understanding of what they're going to be responsible for and what I'm going to be responsible for. I, I have these conversations with them totally up front um, to the point of uh, my 16 year old was we, we just did our taxes last week and we were talking about the check that we had to write to the government. And they were like, well, well how does all that work? And, you know, I showed them one of my pay stubs and showed how much money goes elsewhere and what goes into retirement and everything else. I don't think a lot of parents have those discussions with their kids. They just think that, you know, I can remember when I was a little kid when, um, you know, you thought all you had to do was just drive up to the bank and they just give you some money. Didn't realize where that money came from. And there's probably a whole generation like that as well. But as a planner, you know, if you're encountering this and you're only speaking to the parent, uh, I would I would strong. And what you do is you really tie yourself in with the parent. If you say, let me be the bad guy. Yeah, oh, that, that that's great advice. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, although you may lose the kids as a client. But hey, yeah, <laughs> I come from a very different background. You know, my my dad told me at 12 years old. Um, so I, I I'll tell you a story. Um, I had broken my finger. Um, playing football. This is when I was first getting into football and I got smashed between two helmets. And so you know, we didn't have health insurance growing up. And so I uh, I didn't want to tell my parents because I knew that going to the doctor was a very big deal and it caused a lot of stress. Now, I didn't understand money very well at 12, but I understood that we didn't have it growing on trees and that it was a decision. Are you really sick? Do you know, can we take something from over the counter? We'll give it a few days, your immune system. Let's pray about it. And, uh, you know, so I hid it from my father. Um, and my father was a, was a surgeon's assistant in the army. So he knew something about first aid and uh, had some basic skills. And so I was, he saw me in my room one day and I was icing my finger and my finger in a, in a bucket of ice. And he's like, Hey son, what are you doing there? So I, 
explain it to a mop. Oh, I just jam my finger down. It's it's fine. Let me look at it. It's like, oh, it's fine, Dad. Takes one look at it. And man, my finger is all, it, it, my pinky swollen up so big it's almost touching my ring finger. It just it looks terrible. And he's oh son, that's terrible. We got you have to go to the doctor. That that thing's got to be broken. It looks terrible. Long story short, it's shattered. The bones are all over the place. I got to have surgery to line it back up, and uh, it's a big deal. And so I remember hearing my parents talking about this and you know well yeah we're gonna have to have the surgery we gotta pay for it what are we gonna have to sell him my dad owned a junkyard uh that sat right in front of the landfill i was the the junk man's son and so when it came to paying for something is what do we have to sell we have to find something to buy junk and we have to sell it and how much do we need to sell do we need to sell personal possessions this is what it took as I was growing up to think about paying for something like a medical bill. And, you know, I remember standing in another room overhearing, you know, how the kids do listening in on this conversation, hearing this. And, you know, they, they didn't mean for me to hear it, obviously. Um, but afterwards, I told that, you know, I'm sorry this happened. He said, son, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. My father was a minister and he was a very faithful man. He said, God will provide. And, um, and I remember telling him, you know, again, about, you know, sorry this happened. And he said, son, don't worry about it. It's an investment. And I said, well, what do you mean an investment, dad? And he said, well, I, I know you, that, you know, if you, if you want, this will be yours. And again, this place was dirty. It was nasty. And you got to remember, I'm from a rural area and you are known in a rural, everybody knows everybody in a rural area based on a couple of things. So anyone in the county, if you said, "Hey, uh, do you know, you know, Highway 13 is like you're uh, like you're coming into or Highway 278, like you're coming into Hazelville? Uh Yeah, you know that junkyard that sits right in front of the, the landfill. Yeah, well, that's Jerry Wilson. Uh, well, I, I was the son of the junk man that sat in the junkyard in front of the landfill, and so if I wanted to be that, I could have it. And so, but I know, son, you don't want this." So if you're going to want to do something else, you're going to, I know you're going to want to go to college. And uh, if you're going to go to college, you're either going to have to uh, save your money because we can't pay for it. And, or you're going to have to go to the military. So yeah, I took the ASVAB. Uh, or you're going to have to sack the quarterback well enough that somebody pays for your education to go play football in college and, um, you know, or get an academic scholarship. And I've never known anybody that got an academic scholarship, you know, so the I, I look at this and I tell that story as a you know here is here is the way that you've got to pay for college and I think with you know the, the, I know way more about the world and how things operate that my dad was able to tell me uh, from, from where he came from you know he was the he was he got us out of the pit right changed the direction of, of the family but. You know, I believe that I will talk to my children as as investments is, hey, I'm not going to say that you have to go to college. College was the only way that they knew, you know, to 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 get into a different social class and a different opportunity set. And, and that did work for me. But I think that we err a lot of times when we talk to children as you have to go to college to be successful because it makes it about college and not about the skills that you're getting in college. And it's one of the, the things that, that scares me a lot of what I see in academia is it's about passing the class and it's about getting the name and it's about, and it's not about executing. 
I tell my students here all the time, it's not about what you know, because if you if you come out of here and remember 25% of the information, if you execute on 25% of the information, you'll be okay. But if you, if you know all of it and can't execute on any of it, it's not going to matter, right? And so, we, but we make so much of it about going to college without focusing on what skills are you gaining in college? What connections are you making? What degree are you, are you getting a degree that is giving you that the employers even care about? Or are you getting a degree that, 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 that just to get a degree? And so I would talk to my children about investments is, okay, you want to go to college. Dad is willing to uh, potentially invest in this, but you're going to need to make an investment case because I'm not telling you I'm going to pay for your college. I'm telling you I'm willing to have an investment conversation with you. And Mm -hmm. because I want to see you successful, we can have this conversation over a number of years and you can go back to the drawing board. Right. Yeah. So you come to me and you say, hey, dad, I want to go to college. Like, I'm interested to hear your plan. Is this a plan I want to invest in? And if the answer is no, I'm willing to give you coaching so you can go back to the drawing board and improve your plan to where you create something that I'm going to want to invest in. Right. I mean, there was a time where if you Mm -hmm. wanted to get a loan for college, you had to convince someone that you were a good investment. And that meant Oh, well, I'm going to go to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to study finance. Okay. Where are you going to study it? Why do you want to study finance? What's going to come out of it? Now it's just anyone. And I, and I know the reason that we did this. We, we, we believe that people didn't have equal opportunity, but now it's everyone goes to college, not thinking about the value that you're getting out of an education. You know, so I, I will talk to my children the way that I think the government should talk to all of us before giving us loans is, is this a good investment? Does it make sense? You want to be, a, uh, you know, uh, I hate to say this, but you know, you want to be a social worker, um, and you're going to make X amount of dollars a year. Maybe you shouldn't go to the most expensive school in the state. Maybe you should go to this program and then have this other route and show me how this is going to be. This is going to, you know, instead of just complaining about the cost of the education, maybe you should have pursued this at a school that the cost would have been more reasonable. Um, for what you're what you're doing, or maybe some of these degrees are not worth pursuing based on what the money that you can earn off of them. And so, if my kid comes to me with a plan of, well, I want to do X, I want to go to the school, we we completely divorce the school and the cost of the education from the plan. And the the two should be aligned. And when we when we talk to our children, um, they should be aligned. I believe. The plan and the cost and where you're going and does this make sense financially? Maybe you need to change. Maybe you should consider a different route in life. Maybe you should consider a different college because the college, the cost of the college, the cost of this degree and the opportunity that you get from it uh, is, uh, is is very, very different. Yeah. Like every everything has to have a cost benefit analysis. Absolutely. And and that's definitely uh, definitely a big one right there. Yeah. So. Well, hey, Russell, it's been great talking to you today. You bet. We're running short on time. So thanks, everyone, for for tuning in. And next time around, I think we'll be talking a little bit more about the volatility we we started early in this discussion and a bit more about uh, ChatGP being starting to be used in in financial, uh, um, financial purposes. Thanks, Russell. You bet.